You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. The scripture for this morning is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel, and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel, all Israel, and before the son. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joshua. Uh, very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. Now, we are doing a series on justice. Uh, today, we're into the second sermon. Last Sunday, we answered some basic questions about justice. Uh, today, I'm going to build on those basics, and we're going to look at the aftermath of David and Bathsheba's bloody affair, or part one of the aftermath. Next, uh, next week, we will do the second half of it. Now, I just want to begin by giving us a quick reminder um, of what King David had done. So while his men were out fighting his war, he has an affair with one of his soldiers' wives. The wife gets pregnant. David tries to cover it up by having the soldier come home and sleep with his wife. Now, that plan fails. So David tries a new plan. He returns the soldier to battle. He deploys the soldier. His name is Uriah, by the way. So he deploys Uriah at the front lines of the battle. And then he has Uriah killed. After Bathsheba mourns her dead husband, David swoops in and marries her. Now, as far as it seems, it looks like David has gotten away scot-free with his crimes. So that's the story in a nutshell. Now, what many of us find most disturbing about this story is not the affair. Um, it's not even the murderous scheme that David came up with. What we find most disturbing is how David abused 
his God-given position and power to cover up his crimes. Now, probably more so than ever before, people today have an almost automatic distrust for authority. We've come to expect people in power to abuse their power, right? The saying, as that saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And so we've all heard the stories, right? Government leaders bending the law to suit their own interests, uh, business leaders bullying and manipulating, uh, religious leaders using their position and their influence to coerce sexual favors, leaders of humanitarian non-profit organization embezzling funds, pocketing donations, parents abusing their children and intimidating them into silence. We've come to kind of expect corruption at every level of authority. So today, when we read such things in the news, we hardly blink. Right? It's expected. There's a certain jadedness. There's an automatic distrust towards people in authority. Now, the Bible advocates for honoring authority, but while it does that, it also doesn't try to hide the corruption that's often found uh, in authority. And so in Ecclesiastes, <clears throat> in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the preacher declares, <clears throat> Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was, just, uh, was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now the Bible is very frank. Right? The very authorities who are supposed to maintain law and order, who are supposed to do justice, who are supposed to protect the vulnerable, even these authorities can be unjust. And again, the story of David and Bathsheba is yet another instance in the Bible of how the, the powerful abuse their authority to get away with injustice. But the Bible also gives us hope. Worldly authority may fail, may disappoint us, but the God above all authority, he never fails. And that's the same message in today's passage. So this is this what we're going to look at, uh, the king and his injustice. I've broken the story into four parts. Firstly, the confrontation. Secondly, the conviction. Thirdly, the charges. And finally, the consequences. Coming up? All right. So I'm going to be providing applications as we go along and by God's grace, I, I really pray that we would grow in confidently confronting the injustices we see around us. Let's begin with part one, the confrontation. Last Sunday, we talked about the two aspects of justice, of justice right? There's the positive aspect and the negative aspect. For most of us, the positive aspect of justice comes more naturally, right? Like giving to the poor, providing for the needy, receiving those who have been abandoned, the positive aspect of justice is all about raising up the downtrodden, right? By extending compassion and care towards them. And I think this comes more naturally to most of us. But it's the negative aspect of justice that we probably struggle more with. Now, this negative aspect of justice is all about confronting evil, confronting wrongdoers, standing up for the defenseless, bringing down the oppressors. Now, we tend to struggle more with this negative aspect of justice. Why is that? Now, sometimes the reason why is because confronting injustice may also mean confronting people in authority. So, for example, it's, you know, one thing for a parent to address his child who's beating up his sister. But it's another thing for a child to confront his dad for abusing the mom, 
It's one thing for a boss to intervene when one employee is taking advantage of another employee, but it's way more difficult if it's the employee that has to confront the boss. So it's really hard to confront someone with authority over you about their injustice. Many times, it's only when an even higher authority gets involved that justice is finally served. So it may take a school principal to intervene so that the young child is able to secure justice against her abusive father. It may take the board of directors to get involved uh, before the employees are willing to confront their oppressive boss. And this is how our passage today opens. It has been at least six months since Uriah was murdered. Bathsheba has already given birth to David's baby. Everyone seems to have moved on, left it behind. But somehow, David's crimes are only now revealed to Nathan the prophet. But it's not so straightforward for Nathan to confront King David. Right? What if David kills Nathan to silence him? What if the whole kingdom is thrown into chaos because Nathan has uncovered David's crimes? What if things would actually be better, right? be more peaceful, if Nathan just keeps his mouth shut? Now, there are so many things outside Nathan's control. There are so many unpredictable outcomes. So what does Nathan do? How does he decide whether to confront King David or not? Verse 1 tells us. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. In the end, it's not Nathan who goes, but it is God who sends him. And of course, God is the king above all kings, including King David. God is the judge of all the earth, including King David. So an even higher authority has stepped into the picture. And his authority changes everything for Nathan. Now there's a sense of security for all of Nathan's concerns and fears. God is with him. God is sending Nathan. And so in the authority that God gives, Nathan confronts King David. People, God's superseding authority is our grounds to confront injustice. You know, we are often faced with two extremes when, when it comes to confronting injustice. One, one extreme is being man-fearing. Right? I, I don't want to confront my boss because I might lose my job. I don't want to confront my parents you know, just to keep peace in the, in the family. Uh, I don't want to confront my friend because I'm afraid what my other friends might think about me. So I'm more concerned about the repercussions than about justice. I'm more concerned about what others might think about me than doing what's right. right? So that's being man-fearing. Now the other extreme is self-righteousness. I confront injustice because of how it makes me feel. When this person did what, that, what this person did to that person made me so angry. It broke my heart and I got outraged. So I'm taking matters into my own hands. Right? That's self-righteousness. Now, both of these extremes, they ground their justice in me. It's what people think of me. It's how I feel. It's me, me, me. You're looking to yourself for that authority to confront injustice, but that authority is not in you. That authority is ultimately found in God. And until you find that authority in God, that it is God who sends you to confront injustice, that it is God who anoints you with the spirit of justice, you're on shaky ground. You're going to be flipping and flopping hot and cold towards justice. But if it is God who has sent you, then it's no longer about you. It's no longer about what you want. It's about God. 
It's about His justice, not yours. And it's about how God is bringing things back to the way to how things are meant to be. God's superseding authority is our grounds to confront injustice. And this is so assuring, especially when we have to confront injustice uh, with people who are in positions of authority over us. Now let's look at part two, the conviction. Nathan has confronted David, but he does so tactfully. He comes before King David and he, he gives him this story. The story is about two men. Uh, one is a rich man, one's a poor man. The rich man has flocks of sheep. The poor man has just the one sheep. And this sheep is so precious to the poor man that it's almost practically a part of his family. Now, one day, the rich man has to entertain a guest at his home, but he doesn't want to use one of his own sheep, one of his many sheep, to feed the guest. So he takes that one precious sheep from the poor man, he slaughters it, and he feeds it to his guest. Now, we know that this is actually a story about David. This is what David has done. David is the rich man. Uriah was the poor man. David had many wives, right? But Uriah just had Bathsheba as his one wife, and she was dear to him. When lust came knocking at David's door, David didn't turn to any of his many wives. Instead, David took Uriah's wife away from him. Now, how does David respond to this story? Now, Nathan is not even done with his story, right? He's getting there, but he's not done. David interrupts. Why? Because David is outraged. David himself was a shepherd. He was a good shepherd. And his heart goes out to the poor man with that one sheep. David is also the king, and it is his job to proclaim judgment upon this situation. And in his wrath, David is more than ready to judge. So things are going according to Nathan's plan. Now, David goes on to pronounce two judgments. Uh, in verse 5, David declares that the rich man must be put to death. In verse 6, David demands that the rich man uh, should make a 400% compensation to the poor man who has lost his sheep, whose sheep has been killed, actually. Now, according to God's law, Exodus 22, verse 1, if a sheep is stolen and killed, a compensation of four sheep must be paid. So if you look at it, you realize that David's second judgment is totally right. It's totally in sync with God's word, and he gets that judgment totally right. But the first judgment is totally off. Stealing and killing a sheep is not worthy of the death penalty. The rich man shouldn't have to die for his crime. But David is so consumed by righteous anger against this rich man and it's at this point that Nathan sees the opportunity to cut into David's heart and he declares to David, you are the man. You are the one, David. You are that rich man. And now David stands condemned by his own judgment. Now, isn't it strange how passionately David condemns injustice even though he himself is guilty of it? David's crime is way, way worse, yet he is more than ready to condemn someone else to death, even over something that is less criminal. Now again, we look at it and maybe it's not that strange, because we are all like that, aren't we? We are quick to point the finger, but we hate admitting to our faults. 
We make a big deal over someone else's crimes, but we are super defensive when we are accused. Now, people, David's response is such a reflection of how we love justice, but we hate being judged. It should be up there on the screen. We love justice, but we hate being judged. Francis Schaeffer, the 20th century theologian, he gave this very famous illustration. He said, imagine you have an invisible recorder around your neck for all your life. And it records every time you say to someone else, you ought to do this, you should have done that, you must do this. And it only turns on when you tell somebody else how to live. Now, in other words, it only records the times when you impose, when you impose your own moral standards on other people. Right? It records nothing except what you believe to be right or wrong. And then we come to Judgment Day. And God takes the recorder and he says, you know what? You may have never heard about Jesus. You may have never even read the Bible. So I want to be fair. What I'm going to do is that I'll judge you by your own standards. I'll judge you according to what's recorded in your tape recorder. And then God plays the recording. Now, Francis Schaeffer says there's not a person on the face of the earth who will be able to pass that, te that test. Francis Schaeffer is right. Now, people, there's a hypocrisy in our hearts. God created us in his image, and that's why we love justice. But sin has also brought us shame. And that's why we're constantly trying to hide our own faults, our own crimes, our own injustices. And one of the best, one of the most sinful tactics we've discovered in order to keep our sin hidden is by exposing and making loud the wrongs that other people have done. When we shine a spotlight on their crimes, then ours can remain hidden in the dark. And so we ignore the log in our eyes and we point out the speck that is in someone else's. We judge and we judge, ignoring the fact that we will be judged by that same standard. And especially when it comes to justice, we have got to watch out. Watch out for hypocrisy. Watch out for double standards. Do you shed tears for other people's wrongs, but not for your own? Are you more outraged at other people's injustices, but not your own? Are you certain, are you sure that your righteous anger, that anger that you're feeling, isn't actually just self-righteous pride? People, God is calling us to do justice, but let us not neglect our own injustice, our own sin. Whether it's in our families, whether it's our places of work or in, or in school, whether it's in our, in our church even. Justice must begin in the house of the Lord and among God's people. We look at part three, the charges. Nathan has exposed David, but what specifically are the charges against David? Now we read in verses seven to nine, and God says to David, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, these are the charges laid against David. 
But look at all the phrases that I've underlined. What are David's crimes? David has spurned God's goodness and blessing. David has chosen to ignore, just to forget about what God has done to bring David to where he is, to give him all that he could ever need. And ultimately, David's crime is in despising God's word and doing evil in God's eyes. Now we look at this, at this text and we wonder, why does God keep talking about himself? Why doesn't God talk about Uriah or about Bathsheba or even about the people of Israel at large? And you know, later on, David writes Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance for his crimes against Uriah. And this is what David writes in verse 4. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now again, David seems to be making his injustices about God and not about Uriah. What's going on? Now, I'm sure we've all encountered Christians who, are, who just over-spiritualize things, right? They say things like, God has forgiven me, so I don't need anyone else's forgiveness. God has accepted me, so I don't need to do anything more to right my wrongs. Right? These Christians, they accept God's forgiveness, yet they ignore God's desire for reconciliation. They ignore God's desire for justice. Over-spiritualizing justice makes us very uncomfortable. It feels like people are just using God as, an, as a convenient excuse so that they don't have to do anything at all. Now, is David over-spiritualizing his injustices? More importantly, is God over-spiritualizing David's injustices? After the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, the United States declared that this was an attack on all Americans. At that time, there were almost 285 million people living in America. How many were directly affected by the attacks? Less than 100,000 of those 285 million people were directly affected by the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Now you look at those numbers, 100,285 million. Was 9-11 really an attack on all Americans? Right? Isn't it an overstatement to say that? Isn't that a bit too much? Yet it is true that that attack in New York City was an attack on all Americans. Why? Because something larger had been violated. Something larger, America's identity, their sovereignty, their way of life, something larger was violated through that attack. Now, in the same way, though David's injustice was directed at Uriah, yet something larger was violated by his actions. God's personal covenant with David was violated. God's covenant with Israel had been violated. But even more than that, these injustices were a direct violation against God. Because when you commit injustice against someone made in the image of God, your offense is no longer just against that person, but against the God in whose image that person was made. 
Now, people over-spiritualizing justice is a big problem, right? God cannot and He must not become our excuse not to address injustice. But having said that, under-spiritualizing justice is an equally big problem. Now, people, listen to this. When we under-spiritualize justice, we cut off the very foundations of justice. When we say justice is more about addressing the suffering of people than about the offenses committed against God, when we take that approach, we find ourselves on very shaky ground. When we separate justice from God, we are actually on a path to perverting justice. Now, let me give you an example. Now, these days, my wife and I, we've begun talking, having that very difficult conversation about disciplining our daughter, right? She's begun showing her sinful side side very clearly, uh, not just against us, her parents, but also against people around us. We believe that the Bible advocates not just for different degrees of intervention, but for corporal punishment, which in our context means something like caning. Now, of course, there's a time for timeouts, there's a time for reflection corners, there's times to talk extensively to understand where our daughter is coming from. But there's also a line that when it's crossed, it must be reinforced consistently through caning. But I think the feeling we have is that this is such a scary responsibility, isn't it? Where do we draw that line? How do we decide what the punishment should be? How many strokes of the cane? There are all kinds of things we need to figure out. But now imagine if I took God out of the equation. How would I then decide where to draw that line? Do I rely on my emotions? If I'm feeling good that day, I just close one eye. But if I'm in a bad mood, I had a bad day, well, she's really going to get it. Do I rely on the latest psychological perspectives? Do I rely on my own upbringing? Do I rely on the culture that I'm in? What I see other parents are doing? You see, once I remove God from this picture, once I no longer believe that my daughter's sins and injustices are firstly and ultimately against God, that she's violating God's nature and God's order, I no longer have a certain foundation. I have to rely on myself, on my culture. I have to rely on something else that is constantly shifting and changing and evolving. And if that's how we're doing justice, I think it's terrifying. Because this not only applies to how I'm thinking about disciplining my child, this applies to how we do justice at the workplace, in school, even in our church. Without God in the picture, our families, our society, our church would just be pulled every which way by whatever whim and fancy of those who are in authority or by every new and compelling idea that comes along. People, we cannot afford to under-spiritualize justice. We cannot cut God out of the picture. We must hold fast to a God-centered understanding of justice because that is the foundation to pursuing justice. Now we come to the final part of the story, the consequences. Nathan has confronted David. David is is at that place of conviction. The charges are clear. David has not only wronged his fellow man, he has ultimately wronged God. So what are the consequences David must face? 
In verses 10 to 12, God spells out the consequences and they are, they are threefold. Firstly, David will never again know peace. David is told in verse 10, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house. David's household will be filled with animosity, with bloodshed, and with sorrow. Secondly, David will lose all honor. In verse 11, God promises that David will face evil from within his own family. David's wives will be sexually humiliated publicly. And all of these things will be to David's shame. Verse 12, God states explicitly, David, you did all these things in secret, but I will do all this. I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David's shame will be laid bare before everyone and he would lose all honor. Now, if you follow the rest of David's life, you'd see these two consequences coming to pass. Three of David's sons will die gruesome deaths. His daughter will be raped by her half-brother. One of David's sons will drive David out of the palace, and then he will go on to sleep with all of David's concubines publicly on the roof of the palace before all Israel and before the sun. And David would have to flee for his life. No peace no honor. But there's still one more consequence, and this consequence is not mentioned explicitly, but maybe because it's so obvious that it probably doesn't need to be mentioned. David must die for his injustices. He must be put to death. In Exodus 21, the law states that anyone who kills through cunning means must be put to death. Leviticus 20 states that anyone who commits adultery must be put to death. <clears throat> Deuteronomy, <clears throat> excuse me. Deuteronomy declares that payment must be made, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, foot for foot, and life for life. In all these charges, David stands guilty. He deserves at least three death sentences. And so the third consequence is that David has no future. Should be up on the screen. Now, in light of these injustices he has committed, David's story should end here. Now, as we see God bringing this justice upon David's head, there are also three things that we can learn. Firstly, don't lose hope for justice. There is no ruler, there is no billionaire, there is no abusive parent who will escape justice. You can outsmart every human institution on earth, but there is no way you are going to outsmart God. There is a final judgment, and there the wicked will face the consequences of their actions. So if you are someone who has been seeking justice, don't lose heart. It is coming. Every unjust offense is firstly and ultimately against God, and he will not let the wicked escape. Secondly, don't lose yourself to revenge. Now, in my relatively short life, I've already again and again met men and women who are so bitter, who have become so defined and consumed by what somebody did to them, the injustice that was committed against them. And it's very sad. Right? And I want to encourage us, don't be like that. Put your hope for justice in God. Now, you know, David may have killed Uriah, but God still avenges Uriah. 
Even in the New Testament, we are told again and again that we should not avenge ourselves because vengeance belongs to the Lord. There will be times, people, where we won't find justice for the wrong that was committed against us. The, the unjust might escape. The perpetrators might get away with it. They may pass away even before earthly justice is done. Worst case, they may even lose their sanity and they forget their crimes. I think that is when we especially need to leave justice in God's hands. If we choose to cling to that injustice that was done against us, it will consume us. We will lose ourselves, but we don't have to go down that path because our God will avenge us. Thirdly, don't lose respect for authority. Now, the story of David and, this, and, and, and Bathsheba, it reiterates to us how weak and how imperfect the structures of justice are on this earth. The government, the legal system, the police, principals and teachers in school, bosses and HR departments at work, elders and board members in the church, parents and guardians at home, all of these authorities fail us and will continue to fail us. Not only will they fail to protect us, they may even abuse their authority to exploit us. But that doesn't mean that we become cynical towards authority. That doesn't mean that we hesitate to honor and obey those in authority over us. The reason why we respect these authorities is not because they are so good, because they are so perfect, because they are so free of corruption. We respect them because God has appointed these leaders over us and God is perfectly just. And so we must not lose that respect for these authorities. At the end of the day, they too will be judged. They too must give an account. Now as we come to an end, I look back on this passage, I look back on the sermon, and my honest response is that justice is so hard. It's so hard. Doing justice is like walking a tightrope. The moment justice becomes about making other people happy, the moment justice becomes about satisfying my own self-righteousness, I fall off. Walking the tightrope is doing justice God's way, not my way. And that's probably the hardest part. Because once I start thinking I'm the one seeking justice and that it is not God who has sent me to do justice, that it is not God who has anointed me to do justice, once I start pursuing justice according to my own standards, instead of recognizing that God himself is the foundation of justice, once I start believing that I must be the one to secure justice and that it is not God who will avenge, once I make justice about me and not about God, I, I fall off the tightrope altogether. And what that means is that I'm no longer doing justice. Now I'm the one distorting justice. I'm the one who's going to be perverting justice. Because justice is meant to be a reflection of who God is. But the justice I'm now looking for is made in my own image. And again, that terrifies me. It terrifies me because my justice makes a big fuss about other people's sins, but excuses my own. My justice condemns the crimes of others, but has a thousand explanations for my own. In other words, my justice is biased. It's partial, it's corrupt, it's crooked, it's self-seeking, it's self-validating. My justice is not going to bring restoration. 
my justice is just going to make things worse. My justice is part of the problem. But I look at Nathan in our passage today, and I'm amazed. I mean, Nathan loved David. Nathan loved the people of Israel. Nathan loved God. He must have been in so much turmoil when he found out about David's affair, about how David had schemed to kill Uriah. David had turned his back on the kingdom. He had turned his back on God. David had decided to put his own desires above the needs of his people, above the holiness of God. And now Nathan is the one who has to confront David. And now justice has to be done, which means through Nathan, David has to die for his crimes. Now, Nathan must have been feeling a mix of rage and despair, disappointment, betrayal, and so much grief. We can only imagine what Nathan was facing. But we look at our passage today, and we hardly sense a thing of what Nathan was going through. In our passage today, it's like Nathan disappears into the background. And it's as if God is doing business directly with David. It's like Nathan has taken himself out of the picture so that God would be the one to execute his perfect justice upon David. It's like Nathan is praying, not my justice, but God's justice be done. Let me decrease so that my God may increase. Nathan is walking the tightrope of justice. It's not about him. It's about God. It's about God's justice being done. Nathan inspires us, but ultimately it is Jesus who changes us. Now, like Nathan, Jesus was sent by God to convict us of our injustices and sin. Like Nathan, Jesus spoke in stories and parables that until today, when we read them, it makes us feel uneasy, it makes us feel uncomfortable, even makes us feel condemned. But unlike Nathan, the greatest most convicting story was not any parable that Jesus told. That ultimate story of our unjust criminal nature was lived out in Jesus' own life, in his suffering and his death on the cross. Like Nathan, Jesus came to us as the man of sorrows, grieved because he loves us, grieved because for our crimes we have to die. And like Nathan, Jesus was committed to executing God's justice perfectly. Like Nathan, Jesus emptied himself. He was always about God the Father and much less about him. But unlike Nathan, Jesus didn't just remain a prophet on the side of God, speaking condemnation upon us. But Jesus became both the priest and sacrifice on our side, on the side of man, offering up his perfect life as a substitute for our corrupt lives. The justice and condemnation fell on him. Unlike Nathan, Jesus himself became our refuge so that anyone who hides in him will live. They will be saved. Jesus walked the tightrope of justice perfectly. And he invites us not only to walk that tightrope like him, but with him. Even on that tightrope of justice, Jesus is still our refuge. We are hidden in him. He will keep us from falling off the tightrope. Jesus has also filled us with his Holy Spirit. In John 16, Jesus says this, And when the Holy Spirit comes, he 
will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is the same spirit that Jesus has anointed us with. The Holy Spirit is God's means of accomplishing justice on the earth. The Holy Spirit is God's authority upon us. He will convict the world as he also convicts us. He will keep our justice grounded in who God is and not in ourselves. And so now, with Jesus holding us and with his spirit in us, now we have hope to walk this difficult tightrope of justice. Father, we recognize your holiness. Not just in general, but even your holiness in this place. Your holiness over our lives. Father, if our hearts have not learned to tremble, teach us now, O God. Father, we confess that we have not walked that tightrope of justice well. Lord, so often we give in to a kind of justice that is shaped by what? By the pressures that others are exerting on us. We want to please people. We want to make some kind of superficial peace. Lord, many times our justice is shaped by our own outrage because we feel wronged, because it's all about us. God, forgive us, Lord. If we have made justice anything except the image of your holiness, the image of your perfect righteousness, your character, forgive us, God. Lord, we come now and we are grateful once again for Jesus. We thank you for this greater Nathan, Lord, who took on not just the responsibility to judge us, but who took on that very judgment upon himself. And Lord, because of you, Jesus, we can also say that we have been made just for all our flipping and flopping, flopping, all our blowing hot and cold towards justice because we are hidden in you, Jesus, because you are our refuge. We are just and we give thanks for that. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. So Lord, we want to throw aside Lord, the injustices that have shaped us, our bias, our self-centeredness in, in pursuing justice. And now we want to cling to Jesus. We want His justice to live out through us. Holy Spirit, come. Come and fill your people. Give us that anointing afresh. Give us that anointing afresh to do justice, Lord. A kind of justice that proclaims that God is just. A kind of justice that proclaims that we are no one different, Lord. We ourselves stood condemned. But we have found a hope and a refuge in Jesus. Lord, as we pray, your will be done. Your kingdom come. I pray, God, that we are not just imagining things according to our own terms. But we desire, Father, for your justice to be seen upon the earth. So let it begin, O oh, Father, even in our families. Lord, where there is hurt where there is violence where there's been some sort of abuse that's taken place 
parents to children, siblings to one another, husband to wife. Oh God, bring justice. Bring your justice. Bring restoration, Lord. We pray the same for our workplaces, Lord. Lord, there are probably many among us, Lord, who know that there are things to point out, there are things to address, there are things to confront wherever we are, God. Lord, fill us with courage in your spirit to do so. Fill us with wisdom and tact to know how to bring that about, Lord. But ultimately, let your justice be lived out through us, oh God. Commit ourselves to you. Pray all this in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg